0: Our scripture this morning is from Romans 14. We've been in this short series that we're calling Comeback Principles, and we've been looking at Romans 14. This will be the third part. Next Sunday, uh, Pastor Todd will take on the final portion of this, looking at the opening section of Romans chapter 15. And today's theme is No Stumbling Blocks. So, Romans 14, starting with verse 12, up through the end of the chapter. Paul writes, So then, we will all give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, You are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother or sister for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval." Therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep them between yourself and God. Blessed are those who do not condemn themselves by what they approve, but those who have doubts are condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Rich, is that my mic that's popping? Okay. Well, at a time when we're talking about Christian freedom principles, I think it's appropriate to wish you a happy Juneteenth. It's a new holiday for me, I will have to admit that I was not raised in a culture that made us aware of this, but Juneteenth has been celebrated in Texas since 1865, marking the date when slaves were finally set free in Texas some two months after the Civil War ended. If you're not aware, the story is that General Gordon Granger led thousands of troops to Galveston, Texas, and he announced what was called then General Order No. 3, The war had ended, even though people didn't realize it had been over for two months in Galveston, and all the slaves were set free. Think of this, 250,000 people who were slaves in the state of Texas had no idea until that day that the war was over and that they were set free. Two years after Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. Okay, we're going to do the switch. Uh, those of us who are not people of color, we're not aware of, and what a wonderful thing to celebrate with them. Our theme this morning is no stumbling blocks. The story is told of a rabbi who was at odds with his congregation. The president of the synagogue was troubled by this, and he told the rabbi that they needed to have a meeting to settle this out. So the rabbi, the president of the synagogue, which is like the chair of the elders, and ten elders met to discuss the issue. The rabbi soon discovered that he was the sole dissenter among the group. In other words, everybody else had the opposite opinion than he had. After a very lengthy discussion, the president of the synagogue called for a vote. The majority vote would rule. And when the votes were collected, the president said, Rabbi, you are outvoted 11 to 1, and we have the majority. The rabbi was indignant. He rose to his feet and said, So, you think that you have a majority because of a vote? Well, think again, for I will call on the Holy One to give us a sign and show that I am right and that you are wrong. Immediately, there was a loud thunderclap accompanied by a brilliant flash, and the large mahogany boardroom table that they were meeting around was split in two. The room was filled with smoke, and the president and the elders were thrown to the floor. But as they looked up, the rabbi remained standing upright, untouched and triumphant. The president of the synagogue slowly rose from his position underneath the table, his glasses hanging from one ear and his clothes in disarray. He stood up and he got himself in order and he announced, all right, all right, so the vote is 11 to 2, but we still have the majority. (laughs) Well, that was a great show of strength in the midst of a conflict where neither party would even budge. Today, we're going to talk about how to use our strength to build the kingdom and to seek peace that is pleasing to God, even when there are differing opinions. Here's my hope for the message this morning and for this four-week series. As our country, our state, and our church all transition from the COVID shutdown period, we are learning to respect different comfort zones and different convictions about safety, health, and re-entering life together after an epidemic that has impacted our lives medically, economically, relationally, and even spiritually all around the world. My hope is that these comeback principles equip us not only to deal with these differing convictions and comfort zones, but that they also equip us to know how to use Christian freedom and strength in ways that are compelling as we continue to march through life. So this series is called Comeback Principles. On week one, we laid the foundation by talking about accepting differences, which is the opening command of Romans 14.1. On week two, last week, we added the conscience principle to the accepting principle. I'll explain those in a minute. And today's theme builds on those first two parts of the series. So part three has to do with Paul's challenge to present no stumbling blocks before others. So let me welcome you back to North River Church today. Uh, Welcome to those who are watching from your homes and also to those who are present here in Pembroke. For our North River Online friends, I want you to know that we consider you as part of one North River congregation. And I hope that you will worship with us, that you will pray where you are, and that you will let us know in some way that you are with us today. How do we use our strengths and our freedom as Christians. This is part of what this entire chapter that we've been studying now for 3 3 weeks is teaching us about. And so I want to ask one question or answer one question right up front. Why this stuff matters. In verse 12 of Romans 14, Paul says, so then we will all give an account of ourselves to God. Verse 12 is the bridge verse of this chapter. It ties together what we've looked at the last two weeks with where we are moving today with what we are learning. On one side of the bridge are the Christian freedom principles that we've talked about the last couple of Sundays. On the other side of this bridge are a set of warnings about misusing that freedom. So, what is the bridge? The bridge is this statement we will all give an account of ourselves to God. Think about that for a minute. Paul is writing to Christians that we will all appear before God to answer to Him for what we have done with our gifts, our talents, and our abilities. We will account for how we have used opportunities in life in serving Him. Jesus has given us a new start in life, and an eternal inheritance in heaven for all who have put their faith in Him, and He asks that those who are wrapped up in His grace return thanks by living for Him and representing Him to others in this world. When we are reminded of this, that one day we will stand before God and we will give an account, a wake-up call sort of kicks in. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this for two reasons. The first is so that we will realize that we must not judge other Christians over conscience issues. That's what we talked about last week. And the second is so that we will look soberly at our own responsibilities before God. Now here's the impact if we take all of this in. We embrace the accepting principle and become a very accepting community realizing that we're at all kinds of different stages of growth. It's as if there's one continuum and some are at the beginning or even prior to the beginning trying to figure out if they can have faith and others have been walking with the Lord for a long, long time and processing the commands of Scripture and the instructions for wise living into our lives for many years. But we're all in this together, and those who are long-standing veterans must be very accepting of those who are very new to that process. That's what Paul was challenging us to realize. And then we embrace the conscience principle that leads us to study carefully, to fully assess what Scripture tells us, and even to be open-minded enough that when more facts and more knowledge and more understanding of God's Word come into our minds, that they can lead us to reassess our convictions. We ought to be those kinds of people where more light, more truth, more Scripture can move us off previously held convictions that might not yet be as solid as, they thought, as we thought they were. This is what Paul meant when he said being fully convinced in your own minds. He's not just saying form an opinion and stick on that, comp- that opinion and never budge. He's saying, no, 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 no. Study fully and as more light comes, if you need to adjust, have the courage, have the faith to align yourselves more clearly with what God's word says. This leads to the third major principle from Romans 14 that I want to talk about this morning. It's called the stumbling block principle. So, in verse 13 of chapter 14, Paul writes this Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle. In the way of a brother or sister. Okay, what is a stumbling block? A stumbling block is something in the pathway that causes a person to fall or to fail. An obstacle is something that blocks progress or growth. A stumbling block or an obstacle always makes it harder for the other person. So, notice what a stumbling block is not. It is not simply having a different opinion or belief. We are told to accept differences. A stumbling block is not simply saying that someone else doesn't uh, say, saying something that someone else doesn't like. So it doesn't mean that you can never offend somebody with your opinion or your truth. Jesus would have failed that test. Jesus said a lot of things that the Pharisees and others absolutely did not want to hear. In fact, he said it so clearly and offended them so greatly they wanted to kill him. So Jesus would have this test if it's merely saying, never offend somebody with truth. Rather, a stumbling block is something that misleads people or that causes them to walk away from their faith completely. A stumbling block is a serious matter that impedes progress or growth or that stops forward momentum in the life of another Christian brother or sister. So here's the stumbling block block principle. Not only do we conclude, as we did last week, that strong Christians are accepting Christians, now we add to that. Strong Christians refuse to use their freedom in ways that cause those whose faith is not yet as strong to stumble. That's the principle that we're looking at today. Let me say that again. Strong Christians refuse to use their freedom in ways that cause those whose faith is not yet as strong to stumble. The stumbling block principle applies to how veteran or strong Christians use their freedom once we have arrived at a Christian freedom conviction. So, Paul goes back to this first century conviction that some had about whether they could eat meat or not. This is not a disagreement about being a vegetarian or a red meat eater or having some special diet. This was about meat that had been sold in the street markets after being offered to idols. And virtually all the meat that was available to the public, because in Rome they had a polytheistic system where there are many, many gods, many different idols. People would sacrifice animals to those idols, and then they would take the leftover meat, and that's the meat that would would be bought and purchased and sold in the markets. So, in Rome, if you were offended by the thought that the meat had been offered through an idol, it meant that you probably never ate meat. But there are many other Christians who came to the conviction that idols are nothing. They're made of wood or stone. They're created by some human being. Uh, Therefore, even though others worship them, they're really just wood and stone. And many Christians came to the conviction that we can eat that meat. We offer a prayer to the Lord, and then we bless the food, and we eat it. By the way, this is probably where that tradition that many of you have carried on of praying over your meal before you eat came from because they were re-offering this uh, meat as a source to bless God because it was providing nutrition and strength for them at that time. Did you ever know that? This is probably where your habit of the blessing before the meal came from, because in that moment, the new focus was on the Lord, not on the idols that uh, had been a part of that practice before. So Paul's question was, what do you do, when the strong faith meat eater is sitting at the same table with a conscience-stricken non-meat eater. You get the issue? You have two people sitting side by side, one who says, my faith is strong enough where I can eat this. Yes, I know it was offered to idols, but I've already offered it to the Lord through my prayer. And next to that person is somebody else who says, we as Christians should never eat this meat. This meat was once upon a time offered to idols. How can we even touch this? And Paul's question is, okay, you have the freedom to do this, how do you use that freedom in that moment? So Paul presents some case studies of how Christians in the first century were acting in love. Here's what he says in verses 15, 16, and 17. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother or sister for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking. Case number one that Paul presents. Eating meat offered to idols when your friend cannot. The issue is using your freedom in such a way that it is causing distress for the friend who's sitting at the same table. Now, we need to define something here. What is distress? Distress is extreme anxiety, sorrow, or pain. This is truly distress. Your decision may negatively influence your friend to do something that they believe to be wrong. So because of your decision, your friend is tempted to do what her conscience says is wrong in that moment. To do this would actually be sin because that person is going against a conviction that something is sinful or wrong for her to take part in. Paul describes the problem. He says, Here's the problem for the strong meat eater in that moment. He says, If you go forward knowing that your friend is in true distress, not that your friend has a different opinion, not that your friend just thinks that no Christian should ever do this, but it's causing distress. You hear the weight of that word? Paul says, The problem is you're no longer acting in love at that moment if you go forward. What's the solution? He says, Do not by your eating destroy your brother or sister. In other words, he's saying, You who are strong, push the steak away in that moment. Let, tell them to save the A1 sauce for another time and eat all the veggies you can. The issue is not that you can never eat meat, but when you are in, with this person, you will not flaunt your freedom by insisting that you do something that the other one cannot do and believes is wrong for her or for him to do in good conscience. So Paul says, Don't let the exercise of your freedom cause distress. Distress is the key thought here, it's the key word in, in that phrase. Case number two that he presents drinking around a friend who should not. He's, He says the the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, so he automatically raises that into it. The issue is using your freedom to drink may be causing distress for your friend. Again, distress is extreme anxiety, sorrow, or pain. This is truly distress. So your alcohol use will negatively influence your friend. Because of your use, your friend in that moment is tempted to do what his conscience says is wrong. To do this would actually be sin because he's going against the conviction that this is wrong for him, this is sin for him, this is turning back on what he has promised to God. What's the problem? Same one as in the other case study. If you go forward from that strong position in that moment and insist on your right, you are no longer acting in love, Paul says. So what's the solution? Recognizing that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking. Push that beer or wine or scotch away and have a soft drink in that moment. How about that lemonade? Doesn't it taste good today? The issue is not that you can never drink. Paul says we have that freedom. But when you are with this person, you will not flaunt your freedom in a way that causes your friend distress. This is what we do out of love. And out of love, you choose not to use or exercise that freedom and instead to lift up and identify with your friend in that moment. You remove any possible obstacle from the pathway of your brother and sister. While these two issues are mentioned in Romans 14, they also function as test cases so that we can apply these same principles in other situations. I was thinking of that that this week, and there was a quote that came from one of the earliest global leadership summits several years ago, and it talked about the movement of churches that we are a part of, where we started North River uh, almost 32 years ago in trying to create a safe place where we could talk about faith, talk about issues of faith, talk about Jesus, knowing that in the room would be several people that we've invited as friends who are kicking the tires and trying to figure out if there are enough reasons to put their faith in Jesus as their Lord, as their Savior. And one of the statements that came out of that earlier leadership summit was this. This movement is not about creating churches that give seekers everything they want. It is about removing unnecessary barriers so that we can give them what they need, Jesus Christ. I thought, how appropriate for today. What we're talking about is how we remove obstacles from the pathway of those who at one point or another may have a faith that is in jeopardy over how we exercise our freedom. And this is very much in sync with what we've been learning for 30 years around here. So here's the big idea for this morning. Strong Christians refuse to allow personal liberties to become stumbling blocks that destroy God's work in others. Strong Christians refuse to allow our personal liberties, you still have it, to become stumbling blocks that destroy God's work in others. All right, let's put the pieces together here. We've been walking through three principles over three Sundays. Let's put this together. One of the questions we have to ask is, what are disputable matters? When we began this conversation in Romans 14:1, Paul says, "Accept those whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters." I am very much well aware that one of the questions throughout the last couple of Sundays is what fits into the disputable matters category. And I've been asked that question by a number of people. And so there are many issues that Christians wrestle with or disagree about. I'm not taking a position on these items at this moment. We're just listing them. Here are some of the things that Christians argue about. And not all are disputable matters because the Bible speaks clearly about them. But some may fall into the disputable matters category when the Bible is silent. So here are some of those issues. Divorce. Do we divorce or not divorce? And some Christians have strong opinions about this. Uh, Is remarriage allowable after a divorce? For some Christians, that is never, never possible. I I know that I made the decision very early on in my pastoral ministry that I could never know the whole story, that as long as people were honest with me, I would remarry people who had been divorced as they were submitting whatever had happened in the past to the Lord. Why? Realizing that divorce was so rampant in our culture that we would begin to play the game that I saw happen in the church that I grew up in where our pastor, to give him credit, was very, very consistent. He never, ever remarried divorced people, even once. So sometimes people would go through a divorce, and then they would kind of sneak off, and they'd get married in some private ceremony, and then come right back into the church, and nobody would ever say anything. They wouldn't congratulate them. They wouldn't uh, celebrate with them. They just kind of pretended it didn't happen. And you know what? There's a missed opportunity there, and there's tremendous pastoral ministry that comes into those moments. So, on the one hand, while I'm a champion for what God's intention is with marriage, being a lifelong union, I'm looking forward to celebrating my 40th anniversary with my wife this summer, which is awesome. I have to tell you, at the same time, one of the hidden secrets of North River, some of the best, strongest marriages that I know of are with people who are married for the second time, here in our congregation. And they learned great lessons that the Lord taught them through all of those challenging moments. And they committed themselves to not repeat the same errors in the second marriage. And they have marvelous, wonderful, God-honoring marriages that they've submitted their whole lives to Him together. And it's beautiful to watch. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. Some of the others that are on this list, drinking alcohol or not, politics, we're not even going to go there today, end times theories, we're not in control of when Jesus comes back, but you know Christians of of previous generations argued and separated friendships on whether we believe Jesus is coming back before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation, or if there even is a tribulation. Here's one of the ones we argue over a lot today, same-sex relationships and how we understand them abortion. Women in leadership. Okay, you know that we're a church that has embraced women in leadership based on biblical evidence and even knowing that in some cases, biases were written into the New Testament. I'll give you one example. Romans 16.1 uses the Greek word diaconos, which means deacon when it describes Phoebe. It's a male masculine term. The NIV, when it was translated in 1984, if the only time that they translated that word diaconos as a servant in the church was when it came to Phoebe. Why? The editor said, "Well, a woman can't be a deacon, so we're going to retranslate that word." When they cleaned up the NIV a few years later, the same scholars came back and looked at that and said, "You know what? We made the wrong decision on that word. This is the only time in the New Testament that we've we've taken that term as something other than a title." And it seems that Paul is laying out evidence that Phoebe, who carried the letter from Paul to Rome and was given that great responsibility, was a deacon in the church. There was a term for deaconess, and they didn't use it there. The New Testament uses that title. That's just one example. Uh, Tithing, is it an Old Testament principle? Is it a New Testament principle? Um, Attending a same-sex wedding. You have no idea how many times I get that question. Do I go? Do I not go? All right, I'm not going to settle those things out here right now, but what I want to do is I want to talk to you, how do we make decisions about these things, knowing that within the same congregation, some people will have vastly different opinions? How do you get to that decision? My lovely wife and I were talking about this series last weekend, and she was pointing out some of the things that I had left out. And she does that. It's kind of amazing how that happens sometimes week after week. And she suggested that it would be helpful to have a flow chart to follow that would help people process the information that we've been studying, and she started doodling on a sheet of paper. So I have to give Sue credit for this. I took what she started, and this is what we together came up with. One of the critical concerns is what are disputable matters? So if you're working through some of these issues or others beyond the list that I just presented, the first question we have to ask is, is the issue explicitly addressed in the Bible? If the answer is yes, that the Bible addresses this with clarity, this is not a disputable matter. Follow as best you know how what the Bible says. Does that make, does that make sense to you? If the answer is no, then you have to ask the next question Is this issue, is this issue essential to our salvation? Does it in some way impact? or get in the way of how we connect with the Lord? If the answer is yes, this is not a disputable issue. We follow the Scriptures, we stay close to the theology. If the answer is no, that it doesn't in some way impact our salvation, or get between the Lord and us, then we have found one of those disputable issues. And the challenge would be, follow the Christian freedom principles that we've been talking about in this series. So if you've missed the last two weeks, you need to go on the website, and you need to download the message from the last two weeks, and you'll be all caught up with the rest of us. Question number one, is this explicitly and clearly addressed by the Scriptures? If it is, Christians submit themselves to God's wisdom through the Word of God. We follow the Scriptures. If the answer is no, we ask the next question, is this essential to our salvation? Now there are a couple of questions that we we talked about last sunday when you're in one of those moments the first question is can i thank god for this so the person who is dealing with the meat that was offered to idols the question is can i in that moment thank god for this if so you can probably move forward if you can't and your conscience is stricken this would be the time to stop and to say bring on the vegetables the second question that rises right from the text is can I do this as unto the Lord? In other words, can I offer this as worship to the Lord that this is part of my life that I'm giving up to Him? If the answer is yes, then you can move forward. If the answer is no, there ought to be great caution and probably we ought to stop where we are. At all times, we aim to build up other Christians and we avoid creating stumbling blocks or obstacles that get in the pathway of their growth in faith and love for God. Now, Some of you are going to be frustrated with me because I put a list of issues up there and I didn't give you the answers. I didn't tell you what you have to believe. And here's the reason for that there are some pastors who do that and they're going to lay out the law and tell you what you have to believe. The danger of that is when the pastor is wrong and the pastor is merely exalting his or her own opinion. What I would rather do is teach you how to think according to the guidelines of Scripture. And when you think in ways like this and you have a grid or a flow chart in your head that you can use, we are equipping you for all kinds of decisions that the Bible doesn't talk about where we use these same principles. Why? Because the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking. It's about how we love other people in the name of Christ and how as we grow stronger in faith, We use our strength in ways that do not crush those who are new or beginning or doubting or fragile in faith. Instead, we stand behind them and we uphold them and we encourage them. And sometimes that means we lay down our freedoms in that moment for the sake of those that we love. Make sense? Here's the hard part. We've got to go live it. So let's pray for help right now. Father God, thank you for allowing us to have these letters where the earliest apostles were trying to think through the dilemmas of their day and to describe them with clarity. Lord, help those of us who have been walking with you for a long time to not only grow in strength and grow in knowledge and grow in freedom, but give us such a great sensitivity that we refuse to use our freedom in ways that put stumbling blocks or obstacles in the pathway of those who are trying to find their way to Jesus or of those who are new and fragile in their faith because of all of the hurts of life that have brought them to where they are right now. Allow us to be accepting of those who are on all kinds of uh, rungs of this ladder of growing into spiritual maturity. And allow us together to uphold each other so that at the end of life, when we stand before the judgment seat of God the Father, may we all hear those words when he says, welcome, good and faithful servant. I love the way that you have acted in love toward others. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Happy Father's Day to you all. I hope that you can stay and join in the fun that we're going to have around here. We have one final song that we're going to sing so that we go out into meeting with our neighbors and blessing them with a song on our lips.